This week marks the 65th anniversary of the launch of the Vanguard 1 satellite, which is currently the oldest surviving human-made object in space. So today, we're talking to Richard Easton, whose father, Roger Easton, led the space applications branch of the Naval Research Laboratory from the Vanguard era to the early days of GPS development. So a chance for us to talk about GPS finally. Yes, we loved your feedback from last week's episode. Please keep your comments coming in. You can do this via our social media pages at Space and Things One on Twitter and at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram and Facebook or via the contact form on our website. And don't forget to please consider joining us over at patreon.com forward slash space and things. But right now, enjoy episode 133 of the Space and Things Podcast. Space and Things with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles, and welcome to episode 133 of our podcast. How are you doing, Emily? I'm good. I'm good. I'm hanging in there. I'm still really reading through the comments. We got a lot of the comments we got from last week's show. Last week, obviously, we interviewed Apollo 9's Rusty Schweikert. I'm still sort of like, did we really do that? That seemed like a dream. So it's like a post-Disney high. I'm still on on my (laughs) rusty post-Disney high. Yeah, thank you so much to everyone who got in contact. We've had so many lovely messages about that interview. He was just wonderful, wasn't he? Yeah, he was awesome. In fact, our guest this week, before we started the interview, he said to us, I can't believe you're making me follow Rusty. It's a tough act to follow, that's for sure. Yeah, it is. But but I think we have a pretty awesome show. I think y'all will be uh, very pleased with this week's guest as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So, talking of which, let's just crack on with it, shall we? So, Vanguard 1 launched on March 17th, 1958, and was the fourth artificial Earth-orbiting satellite to be successfully launched following Sputnik 1, Sputnik 2. Now, okay, I'm going to stop here. Some people say Sputnik, some people say Sputnik. What are you, Emily? Are you a Sputnik or a Sputnik? I say Sputnik. I never know. I never know. It's one of those ones, isn't it? Yeah. It's the Gemini. It's like Gemini or... Yep. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like Gemini or Gemini. I say Gemini, but other people say Gemini. I don't really care, honestly, either way. I know what they mean. I don't know what the real one is. I'm assuming it's probably Sputnik, but I say Sputnik. Anyway, yeah. it's the fourth artificial Earth orbiting satellite to be successfully launched following Sputnik 1 and Sputnik 2 (laughs) and Explorer 1. It was the first satellite to have solar power and even though communications with the satellite were lost in 1964, it remains the oldest human-made object in space along with the upper stage of the rocket which launched it. It was described by Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev as the grapefruit satellite which may or may not have been a little bit of shade thrown due to the small size of Vanguard 1 compared to Sputnik. It had three parts to its mission. First, to test the launch capabilities of the three-stage launch vehicle, which was also known as the Vanguard rocket. Second, to test the effect of the space environment on a satellite and its systems. And third, finally, to carry out the measurements of Earth from space by using the analysis of the orbit of the spacecraft. 
And today we're talking to Richard Easton, who, as we mentioned in the intro, is the son of Roger Easton, who designed the Vanguard satellite. Now, long-term listeners will know that Emily and I love to champion an unsung hero, and it's fair to say that Roger is definitely one of those. While Project Vanguard has huge historical significance, Roger is also considered the father of GPS, and to have that as your legacy is, in my opinion, a much bigger deal. We've been saying for a long time now that we want to talk a little bit more about GPS, as it really has had a massive impact for us back on Earth. So here it is. Roger was born in April 1921 and worked for the Naval Research Laboratory from 1943. His work really did change life on Earth. Unfortunately, he passed away in May 2014. In 2013, his son Richard released a book he co-wrote with Eric Fraser called GPS Declassified from Smart Bombs to Smartphones. And today we're very fortunate to be talking to him. So roll the tape. Houston, Space and Things Base here. Dave and Emily have landed on a great episode, so stay tuned for more Space and Things. Hello, Richard. Thank you so much for joining us. And I want to apologize for taking so long to get around to interviewing you because we've been talking about this for a long time now. So first, here at Space and Things, we love a good scene setting question. So your father, Roger, led the space applications branch of the Naval Research Laboratory. What spurred that legendary career? Well, in um, 1943, when he joined NRL, just having a solid job seemed like a very good thing. His father was a doctor in, in Crassbury Common, Vermont, and suffered through all the problems of the Depression. Uh, oftentimes, the farmers could only give him produce in return for his services. So working at the Naval Research Lab seemed like a very good, solid position. In 1952, he joined the Rocket Sun branch, which was doing the Viking rocket program, not to be confused with the later NASA program. So they were doing upper atmospheric research. And the first launch he saw in June of 1952, this is in White Sands, was not supposed to be a launch. (laughs) They were doing what was supposed to be a test firing of Viking 8. And the contractor, Martin, changed the way it was bolted down. And there was so much vibration from the rocket that it took off. So they didn't have it set up for launch or anything. (laughs) It just doggone took off. And Dad said poor Milt Rosen looked like he was about to die. Just a complete loss. (laughs) So rockets in the 1950s, it's not like seeing SpaceX, you know, land simultaneously to two of the Falcon 9s from a Falcon Heavy. It was much chancier. But in 1955, there was a competition between the Army, Navy, and the Air Force as to who was going to launch the first satellite. And the Navy won. And my father for Project Vanguard, he was working on the guidance system, mini track. And he also worked on the small test vehicle satellite that was launched in Vanguard 1. So in some ways, you unnecessarily apologize for the delay, but the delay is perfect because we're three days away from the 65th anniversary of the launch of Vanguard 1, which in the U.S. we have a program called Medicare for those 65 and older. I imagine 65 years 
in space, it's probably got a few dings. So yeah. <laughs> um, maybe we can arrange for it to have Medicare now. <laughs> I love that. That's amazing. But anyway, you, you asked about how he came to, to lead a, the space applications branch. Oh, one story about Sputnik. My dad's colleague, Marty Voltaugh, said they were working really hard. All these paranoid things that Eisenhower slowed down Vanguard so the Soviets could launch first. No one with Project Vanguard placed any credence in that. They were working as hard as they could. And on October 2nd, 1957, a memo went out that there would be no more paid overtime for Project Vanguard. They were way over budget. Two days later, the Soviets launched Sputnik, and Marty said they never mentioned that memo again. It was uh, suddenly, we've got to get up a rocket. And the Soviets, you know, Korolev had to do a lot of convincing to have the Soviet generals allow him to launch a satellite. And then suddenly the West gets hysterical about Sputnik 1, and Khrushchev realized it's been a big propaganda coup for the Soviets. And then a month later, they launched Sputnik 2 with Lake on board. So the pressure is heavy to get an American satellite up as soon as possible. On December 6, 1957, they launched Test Vehicle 3, the first three-stage live test of Project Vanguard. And it gets about four feet off the pad and blows up. It's been oh, called man. Flopnik. Big propaganda <laughs> disappointment for the U.S. But the satellite survived. TV3, they retrieved the satellite. Marty brought it to my dad and asked, what should we do with it? And dad said, well, I guess bring it back. So he put in this little wood box. It's a small satellite, about six and a half inches across, weighed about three and a quarter pounds. He bought a seat for it on a commercial flight to Washington and carried it on board. It sat in our house and until recently was at the Air and Space Museum. Uh, I told that story to Dava Sobel, who's writer of a famous book called Longitude, and she wondered what the TSA would make of a satellite being carried on board a commercial flight today. <laughs> but anyway, Dad realized that Minitrack could only track satellites that were emitting a signal. And the Minitrack system was north-south from about 40 degrees north to 40 degrees south, about 65 degrees west. So Blossom Point, Maryland, which is close to Washington, D.C., down to Santiago. And the early satellites were going to be launched to the east to take advantage of the Earth's rotation. So a north-south tracking system was optimal to, to track satellites heading east. But a spy satellite will be sent into a polar orbit because polar orbit, as the Earth rotates, it can look at more and more of the Earth. So he needed an east-west system that could track spy satellites that were not emitting a signal. And in January 1958, so this is even before Explorer 1 was launched, he yeah. came up with the idea from the Naval Space Surveillance System, which had three powerful transmitters and six receiver stations, all 33 degrees north in the U.S. They set up a, a branch for him. Most of the, and 
Naval Research Lab Vanguard people went to form Goddard Space Flight Center right. because NASA was set up that October. But my dad and a few others stayed at NRL, and he was working on the Naval Space Surveillance System. So kind of a very long-winded answer. You've talked a little bit about Vanguard 1. So what factors and events really led to its creation during the 1950s? In 1950, there was a meeting at Jim Van Allen's house in Maryland where they were talking about there have been polar years in 1881-1882 and one 50 years later in 1830, I'm sorry, 1931-2. And they decided 25 years later, 1957-8, would be a solar maximum and that an international geophysical year to replace the polar years would be a good thing to have. And they quickly realized, hey, a good thing to study the Earth is satellites. So that led to the competition in 1955, predominantly between Milt Rosen, uh, who headed Project Viking, and Werner von Braun for the Army. And the Navy won primarily because their instrumentation package was better. And uh, of course, there was a lot of fear about that because von Braun's rocket was much more developed. So there was even a proposal, why don't you put the Navy satellite and the Navy tracking system combined with the um, what became the Juno to launch a satellite. After Sputnik 1 was launched, they probably wondered, gee, that would have been a better solution. Yeah. <laughs> von Braun in September 1956 almost certainly could have launched a satellite if they'd allowed him to have a live fourth stage. And I know historians don't like what ifs, but a great what if, you know, gee, if the U.S. had launched a satellite first in September of 56, there wouldn't have been such a reaction to the Soviets launching one a year later. Would we have had an Apollo program? It's one of the great what ifs. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's um, so good. The Soviets obviously launched the first human into space, the first woman. They had a long string of firsts. But if America had put the first satellite into space, maybe there would have been much less of a reaction. You know, that's a thought that's going to linger. Anyway, Vanguard 1 is often overshadowed by other satellites of that era, like the Explorer 1, as you said. So, what were some of its significant discoveries and are they still relevant? One basic thing is it's the first solar powered satellite. Explorer 1, the batteries lasted for about four months. Sputnik 1 and 2, it was a matter of a couple weeks. So the, the fact is, Vanguard 1 was transmitting for six years. So I would say just the fact that they've been able to track it for 65 years has given a good idea how thick the very thin upper atmosphere is by watching yeah. its orbit gradually deteriorate. Do, do you have any memories of this time in your house? Did, did your dad ever bring his work home with him, so to speak? Well, I've got a picture of myself with my three sisters and brothers around Vanguard One. Wow. Uh, looks like it's about 
two weeks before it was launched. <laughs> and you can see we lived in Oxen Hill, just outside Washington, and I've got a red coat on. But I was two years old, so I'm afraid I, I don't remember the satellite being home. My older surviving sister and my brother both remember my father tinkering with it on a dining room table. And that was one big advantage of a small three and a half pound satellite. Sputnik 1 weighed about 180 pounds, so nobody could have just brought it home to <laughs> tinker with it. That's so cool. Do you know if they were aware that the satellite was going to last and stay up there as long as it has done, and long, as long as it will do? That was anticipated once it got up. I mean, obviously, there was a lot of uncertainty about, will all three stages work the full amount of time? One problem my dad said was that the battery-powered transmitter would wind down, would lose power while they were waiting to launch. So they took to putting the satellite up almost at the very end with the batteries fully charged. But I think they knew very early on it would be up there for hundreds of years. Do you know if there was ever discussions about whether they could use that to impress the public about how their achievements were better than the Soviets because the Sputniks wouldn't be in space for that long? But I think people are impressed by Leica. I don't think people in 1958 would be too impressed by the fact that it'd be up there for a couple hundred years, alas. I mean, the solar-powered, that was an important feature, and GPS satellites use solar power. And, of course, the, the Russians used solar power even early on for their Soyuz. So that was an important early application. Absolutely. So now let's discuss GPS's birth story as your father is credited with its creation. So were there any occurrences that inspired him to develop this particular technology? In 1964, he was talking with Dr. Arnold Trostak. Some of you may know his son, Seth, who works on SETI. Uh, he was talking with Arnold Trostak about the hydrogen maser, which was a very accurate atomic clock developed in 1960. So they talked about the Maser and how it made a GPS-type technique feasible. So if you know exactly where the satellite is and you have a synchronized clock in the satellite that is sending out a signal and you know what time you received the signal, you know how far you are from the satellite. My dad called it passive ranging other people call it time of arrival, but it's basically the same thing. So with a very accurate atomic clock in the satellite, you can build a global positioning system type system. So that's April of 64. Dad was also working on a, a second space fence. The Naval Space Surveillance System is also called the space fence. They had three transmitter stations and six receiver stations along 33 degrees north. They worked on a second fence in southern Texas, and they had the problem of synchronizing the time between the different stations. They couldn't afford a hydrogen maser when uh, they drove a cesium atomic clock between the stations it drifted, and trying to send the signal over the horizon it was noisy. 
So in September of 64, dad realized, gee, I can put a clock in a satellite and that'll synchronize the clocks in the different stations. And by the way, that can also be used for navigation. So in October 64, they, Matt Maloof, who was one of my dad's engineers, had a convertible and he drove down I-295 in Washington just past the Naval Research Lab with a transmitter and they had a receiver at NRL. And Chester Klezak, one of my dad's colleagues said that Matt was surprised they could tell when he was changing lanes. So that was an application of the GPS type technique. Uh, they launched their first satellite in 1967, Timation 1, second in 69, which would transmit at two frequencies. So you could adjust for the distortion by the ionosphere. And they put the first atomic clocks into orbit in my dad's Timation 3 and 4, which were renamed NTS 1 and 2 in 1974 and 77. So starting in 64, he began working on his Timation system for time navigation. They unified it with the Air Force's system in 1973 to create GPS. And almost from day one, there's been a controversy over who did what. The old joke, failure is an orphan, but success has many fathers. Yeah, so true. Absolutely so true. So that leads us so nicely into our next question. What are some of these common myths or untruths historically perpetuated concerning the advent of GPS technology? And how did GPS become more integrated into the civilian world? Popular myth, which is all over the place, is that GPS started as a military-only system and was open to civilians after the Soviets shot down Korean airliner 007 in September of 1983. You read that everywhere. Not true. GPS development plan from 1974 talks about a signal in the clear for both the civilian and the military user. Texas Instruments was selling the 4100, a civilian receiver, two years before Korean airliner was shot down. So that's the most common myth. It's everywhere. I'm a fairly obscure author, and I've written article about it, but... Uh, at least prior to appearing on this program, not many people know who I am. So, uh, but I'd say that's the most common myth. Well, there's also the lonely halls myth. But Emily, you were going to say something. Well, no, I was going to say we're we're seeking to change that. We're seeking to change yes, that. Yes, yeah, yes, absolutely. yes. But I'd say the most second most common myth. My father's major rival is Brad Parkinson, who was the first head of the GPS Joint Program Office starting in 1973. So he's a very significant figure in GPS history. None of this is uh, to downplay his importance, but he claims that he and 12 others created GPS at the Lonely Halls meeting at the Pentagon over Labor Day, 1973. And he recently won the was one of four people to get the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering, which, by the way, is only given to living people. So my father was not eligible. 
Uh, he also won the Draper Award. So he's won a lot of prizes. But I have a September 21st document, which proves that Brad's not correct, that shows that the major steps towards GPS came after Labor Day 1973. And I've written several articles about that. But again, Brad's got a big platform and I'm a fairly obscure author. So, And, and Naval Research Lab people say that a more important meeting was at Motel on Spring Hill Road or the Spring Hill Motel. They had a meeting with my father and Captain David Holmes and Brad Parkinson. And Brad said that we were turned down because the Air Force's system 621B is too expensive. And David said, well, why don't you take timation? And you look at the September 21st memo, they had three scenarios they considered at Lonely Halls, which all look like 621B. And then afterwards, they got scenario four and 4A, which suddenly look like timation. So what were the main differences between 621B and timation? Can you try and break that down for our listeners? 621B was four regional constellations of four or five satellites, one in geosynchronous orbit and three or four in high inclined orbits. So they would have had like their European constellation, their North American constellation. And the ground stations have to be in the same area as the regional constellation because the geosynchronous satellite stays about in the same place. So your European constellation would have required a ground station probably in Spain. Whereas Timation was either eight or 12 hour orbits, GPS uses 12 hour orbits, precise clocks in the satellites and ground stations in either the US or secure US territories. The major thing they took from 621B was the spread spectrum signal. They took the orbits, the ground stations, and the accurate clocks and the satellites all from Timation. So you can see uh, from Phil Klaas's article in November of 1973 that the compromise was basically they take the Air Force's signal and everything else from Timation. One of the problems with 621B was to get satellite in the geo orbit was very expensive. And the system was more exposed because, again, the ground station has to be in the same place as the satellites. So the Soviets, if war broke out, they would either attack the ground station or jam the uplink and the system would be knocked out. Where the satellites are close together, so one atomic bomb in orbit could knock them all out. Whereas the Timation and GPS satellites, you have a number of ground stations as the mid-Earth orbit, either eight or 12 hours, as the satellite goes over it. So knocking out one ground station will not knock out the system. And it's truly a global system. One of the things the Navy was worried about is they'll be to build one or two constellations and we'll be stuck with an extra navigation system as opposed to GPS replacing all the existing navigation systems. So the Timation system of mid-Earth orbits would truly cover the whole Earth, and you could use it for missile submarines, you could use it for airplanes anywhere, 
you could use it for ships worldwide. So it truly would be a global positioning system rather than a regional system. What did your father think about his creations becoming more recognized and I guess mainstreamed? And what are his thoughts about what were his thoughts about his technologies continuing to innovate, you know, the 21st century and, and beyond? He was just amazed at the applications. A 2019 study said, I think it's $1.8 trillion in economic benefit in the U.S. alone, of which 90% was between 2010 and 2019. So, you know, people have said the problem with GPS is not finding uses for it. It's over-dependence on it. Yeah. That if we had a bad solar storm to knock out the satellites, you know, that would have a significant effect on civilians. And if, God forbid, China invaded Taiwan and knocked out some of our satellites, that would have a huge detrimental effect on the world. So, uh, you know, we've, we've been talking about finding supplements to GPS for a long time, but Americans, we, uh, we solve a problem only when it becomes a catastrophe. So, uh, he was very surprised at how successful it became. Did your dad ever suggest that he was a little bit disappointed that perhaps he wasn't a more recognized figure than he should be, given the fact that he was at the forefront of this incredible technology, which in essence has changed the modern world. I think he was okay with being an unsung hero. On the other hand, he was kind of hurt by some of the false claims made about Timation. Another false claim is that Timation was a two-dimensional system. We have a number of papers on my website, gpsdeclassified.com. You look under resources, and it's being three-dimensional is all over the place. Yeah. And yet, somebody with a prominent megaphone puts forth a false story. It's hard to correct it. When we had the 50th anniversary of Project Vanguard, in 2008, he talked about some of the false stories about Vanguard. One was that it was a hastily put together poor contraption of a satellite. Dad said, you know, it's based on the latest technology from Bell Labs and was put together. I, I was looking at some papers of his that talked about the thermal study of the test vehicle satellites from April 1957. So 11 months before Vanguard 1 was launched, you know, the Naval Research Lab was studying intensively to optimize it. And one of the reasons why they won over Werner von Braun initially was the sophistication of their miniaturization. Do you think that he was more proud of Vanguard or GPS? Probably GPS. When he got the National Medal of Technology from President Bush, in February 2006, that was gratifying. And that evening, when they showed a two-minute clip about each honoree, the Naval Research Lab people really yelled and whooped when they showed his because, you know, the winners write the history. Mm. And because the Air Force led the Joint Program Office, the Navy importance in setting up GPS was obscured. That's part of the reason why I wrote the book. In um, 
2005, I started researching it. And I realized these people are 80 years old, a lot of them, 70, 80. And a lot of them are dying out. So I quickly started interviewing everyone I could that was important to the story to try to preserve it and also find documents. Well, I really enjoyed the book and I appreciate that it exists. The GPS is one of those things which you know we all just take for granted and it's so important in our lives. As you said, there's pretty much an over-dependence on it in many ways and it amazes me that I didn't know the story of how it came to be and that so few people seem to know the story of how it came to be. There's just been so many benefits of this technology. It seems unfair that that's the case. One thing that I also read in working on it was people saying the timing aspect. You know, GPS is a P&T system. Positioning, navigation, and timing. And I read a couple of articles or theses that said that time was an unexpected application. And my father, starting in 1967, said this would lead to worldwide time synchronization. Yeah. His timation, too, was used to synchronize time between the UK and the US. Uh, my first time in the UK in 1974, I met Humphrey Smith, who was head of the time division, and he and my father had done a lot of work on time synchronization. And in a 1974 article, he had the GPS would lead to the time web, worldwide synchronization of time. And, you know, now that's a major part of GPS that very few people are aware of at all. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't even wear a watch anymore. I just use my phone, which is all connected to a central computer somewhere, which is powered by a central clock, probably from GPS, which is amazing that this technology has done that. Well, and of course, it's also got the the downside that people can keep track of you, you know, so, so that's, I don't mind uh, that means I can't get lost. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, I think that's a good place to end. I think this interview has been amazing. I hope that we've let people know a little bit more about how GPS and Vanguard came to be and hopefully made people realize that they should get to the bottom themselves of how this technology got into their hands uh, and corrected some of those myths that exist out there. Yes. Well, and thank you for your wonderful podcast. I've been listening to, to stories, particularly of Apollo astronauts I knew slightly, and you've done wonderful recollections of them. So I I congratulate both of you on your wonderful podcast and much success in the future. Wow, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Uh, Houston, we've got a reading here that says you're listening to Space and Things with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. Over. Wow, this has been a really fascinating discussion. I'll be honest, I do not know a lot about GPS. I know what it is, but I don't know a lot about its history. And it's very fascinating to hear somebody who has been at the sort of the front lines of the history, you know, through his father. I, I think this is just incredible. I do need to buy his book. I, I follow uh, Richard Easton on Twitter and I, I love his uh, post. They've certainly busted a lot of myths in my mind because I, I honestly had a lot of misconceptions about, you know, GPS and who it was invented by or what its initial purpose was. And it's important to know about that. I mean, <laughs> I remember back in the day before I had an iPhone, 
I would print off the map from like MapQuest. I don't know what you guys had in England, but we had something here called MapQuest and I would print it off and use it. I don't remember what it was called, but we did have something similar. Yeah, I would print it off and use it in my car if I didn't know where I was going. You know, it was like (laughs) vintage GPS. You know, this was before you had that on your phone and I was broke. So I did not have a GPS in my car (laughs) or anything like that. So I was using freaking, you know, just maps, you know, and maps are great. It's And it's important to know how to read them. GPS has just made it so easy. I mean, you just have turn by turn navigation. You can just listen to it. it. I use it all the time. So I really think it's one of those technologies, you know, that has just exploded the world open. And I do think we take it for granted because I don't really think about it. I use it so often. I don't really think about it. This has just been a fascinating discussion. And also, not to minimize Vanguard 1, it's still up there. I know, That right? is crazy. So cool. According to the very reliable Wikipedia, <laughs> it's apparently going to be staying up there until 2,198. Oh, God. It will have a 240 years orbital life. Okay, I'll be dead by that point. I'm not going to see it come back down. So Because I'm like, maybe yeah. someday I'll see it come up. Oh, I will not be around for that unless they, unless uh, I'm Robo Emily by that point. Yeah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> we spoke about Vanguard before when we had Dr. Alice Gorman on, and she spoke about how obviously with her role as a space archaeologist, Vanguard One's got a special place in her heart, as it should do, because it's the oldest human-made thing up there. And, and her book, she talks a lot about uh, about Vanguard One and and how. There's got to be a way we just keep it up there. By then, we we think that, you know, surely the technology would exist to, to make sure that the heritage of that spacecraft is is preserved. I don't think it should be brought back. Just leave it up there. Keep it up there forever and ever, unless something bad happens, like it gets blown out by a meteorite or something like that. I think it should be kept up there as sort of a permanent monument to the early space age. Yeah. I really do. If you had to choose, maybe you get rid of the upper stage that took it yeah. there. I mean, and remove that. If we need to remove something, then remove that. But if we can keep the hangar up there, why not? Yeah. To me, it's fascinating that it's still even up there. You know, just like the Apollo sites, I, I think, you know, it's an important monument in space travel. So I, I, there's that part of me that's like, we shouldn't mess with that. Oh, I completely agree. Going back to GPS, I really do find the technology fascinating. And as I said during the interview, it's frustrating that the names and stories of those who gave it to us aren't more widely known. I mean, before I read the book, I had no idea. So few people seem to have a basic understanding or knowledge of how we ended up with this incredible technology in the palm of our hands. And, you know, being a bit facetious, most people know the name of the people, of the person who is credited with inventing the telephone. Why shouldn't they know the name of the person who created GPS? It, after all, it's so hard to imagine a life without it. Yeah. Yeah, I know how to use maps, but still, I mean, GPS just really just makes it so much easier and it's always updated. Back in the day, if you had maps, you had to go out and buy the latest version because where I live, they're always fixed. They're always messing up the road and closing exits so you'll be like oh yeah i'll just go to my regular exit and it's freaking closed you know just stuff like that i mean it sounds stupid and that's really sort of a a dumb complaint but still i mean if you're trying to take a road trip or if you're trying to drive to like a job interview or just something important that is a pain in the you know what it's really just 
not just something high tech. It's just a, a great modern convenience, I think. It's revitalized not just the intelligence and military fields, but also stuff for civilians. I don't think we appreciate it enough. It's really cool. Yeah, we really don't. Anyway, there's one other thing I want to mention, and that was that amazing what if he brought up in the start of the interview. What if America had launched the first satellite into space? How have we not had that conversation before, Emily? We both love what ifs. Oh, gosh. That does open a big can of worms. I mean, to use the it's cliche. It's a massive can of worms. I don't want to do it yeah, now. We can't I think do it something now. we do it another time. I love that he mentioned it because generally I've never thought of that before. And we both love what ifs. I'd like to think more about it. We should do something about that. I think we'll record that as one of our uh, spare episodes for one of when one of us is away. I think that's yes! one of the ones we put out then. I think that's a great idea. Great idea. Well, as always, the full unedited interview will be up on our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash space and things. And also, don't forget to look in the show notes, which you can see in your podcast provider or on our website, spaceandthingspodcast.com, where there'll be links to Richard's website and lots of other things which we are talking about within this show. And remember, when you're sleeping in space, no one can hear you dream. Okay, Emily, what's caught your eye in spaceflight since last week? Okay, um, I don't know if it's the same thing you're going to talk about, but this caught my eye this week. There's a story that was reported by, I'm probably not saying his name right, and I apologize to him, uh, Giorgi uh, Ravishili, and it's also been picked up by Radio Free Europe. But the story is that Kazakhstan has impounded the property of the Russian Cosmodrome operator in Baikonur. Uh, this just dropped, uh, I think, yesterday. And I am actually reading this from Radio Free Europe. This is not my text. Kazakh authorities have impounded the property of Russia's main operator of spacecraft launching sites in Baikonur in the Central Asian nation southern region of, I'm not going to even try, Quizzy Lorda. Okay. Uh, Kazakhstan's bailiff service banned Russia's space infrastructure center from transferring its assets and property out of the country and ordered the entity's leader to remain in Kazakhstan. The Moscow Times newspaper reported on March 14th. According to the media outlet, the decision was made due to the Russian state company's debt of approximately 29.7 million American dollars to the Baitarek Kazakh Russian joint venture for work estimating ecological damage caused by Soyuz 5 rockets. So, yeah, I'm not going to read the whole story. I will post a link to it on the show notes. I mean, this is crazy story, isn't it? Yeah. Um, honestly, I don't want to speculate on anything because I don't know personally what all of this means. I'm not a Russian space expert by any means. If you want to find someone who is, follow Anatoly Zak on Twitter. It's not me. I'm reading the story and I'm like, what does that mean? Like, does that affect future launches coming out of Baikonur? Um, does that affect human spaceflight launches, uncrewed satellites? What does this affect? What does this mean for the future? Does this mean their space program is sort of at an impasse for now? You know, so I think this is a developing story and we'll probably find out. A, I'm, I want to follow it, obviously, for the next few weeks and see what this really means. Obviously, I'll try to bring you updates as soon as I figure it out. But yeah, that's crazy. I read that and I'm like, I've never heard of this in my life. But my guess is Russia's got this war going on and they probably uh, have lost interest in paying for some of their other assets. So that's mental. 
I, I can't yeah. get my head around this. It's hard to compare it to anything in the United States because... But that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Imagine if, for example, Guam seized the ground station that was used to track the Apollo program. Is yeah. That, is that a fair example? Or Ascension Island seized the ground station. Yeah. <laughs> We're just going to take it. It's ours now. Like, what? I didn't even know. Like, Ascension Island is out in the middle of nowhere. I had to go look on a map where it was because I was like, that's a place. Oh, my God. That's a that's a ways out from either of us. If anyone wants to contact us and explain further what this might mean, that is perfectly fine. I'm one of those people I don't want to speculate because I don't know exactly what that means for future space flight. Oh, no, I definitely want to speculate. <laughs> By all means, by all means, if you have speculations, let us know those as well, because the what-ifs surrounding this are crazy. I think that's yeah. part of what makes this story so big. I can't believe it. It wasn't even reported on the BBC. I know BBC's been fairly busy this week, but uh, for some, something unrelated to do with football, I'm not sure. But <laughs> We won't even get into that. Yeah. But how is this not a bigger story? It has the potential to be huge and huge implications. Yeah. We've spoken over the last few weeks about the fact that the commercial crew program that NASA's got in place with SpaceX at the moment will be taking more Russian cosmonauts on Crew 7 and Crew 8 like they have done on Crew 5 and 6. And we spoke about that partly being to do with making the program more resilient to potentially being grounded. Well, this is exactly the kind of thing that could cause that, right? Yeah, it certainly seems that way. Like I said, I I don't know exactly what this means, but I'm wondering what it bodes for spaceflight in general from Kazakhstan, yeah. whether it's crewed spaceflight or uncrewed spaceflight. Yeah, does this open the door for more commercial enterprise to go into Kazakhstan and launch if Roscosmos aren't going to be there anymore? I mean, there's just so many branches of where this can go. So yeah, we'll we'll provide you with further updates. But that's what I—that's really what caught my eye this week, uh, Dave. It's a big one. Yeah, it's a yeah. big one. And what about you, Dave? So what have you been looking at? So many things. Oh my God, there's so much news at the moment. There is so much news. I was looking up what launches are coming up. So many. We got like two Falcon Heavy launches between now and May. Axiom have got a, a, a launch coming up you've got the juice mission there's so many cool missions coming up it's an exciting time as we keep saying there's also a few announcements coming up we're going to hear uh about what the new suits from axiom are looking like by the times podcast out that will have happened the first vulcan centaur rocket is currently on the launch pad being tested we've had a great story this week of relativity space attempting to launch their terran one rocket unfortunately they scrubbed every time they tried. But this is the world's first 3D printed rocket. I mean, what a time to be alive. Crew 5 splashed down after 157 days in space. Uh, a Chinese rocket stage crashed to Earth over Texas, which is pretty crazy. International Space Station had to dodge some space junk. The Mars rover, Perseverance rover, has made its 47th flight. We're getting a countdown to their 50th flight, which is amazing. A cargo ship has been launched pretty much as we're recording this, by SpaceX to go up to the space station. So much is going on. Oh, and Elon Musk has said that the first Starship orbital test launch has got a 50% chance of, of being successful. Depends what your definition of success is, I suppose. Um, so yeah. This is a good one. I think you'll like this. Stoke Space, or a company I've not heard of, um, 
They've been granted the permission to use the launch site where John Glenn launched Earth for orbit. Oh wow! Back in uh, 1963, so they've got they've got this uh, a fully reusable rocket designed to be launched daily, apparently. So we'll see where that goes. Wow! But, uh, yeah, they've been granted that rocket site, which at the moment doesn't look like much. Yeah. So uh, they're going to have to build it up. Yeah. What remains is is just a ramp, basically, up to where the the rocket rocket used to launch, but. I think the big story that's come out this week is the announcement that there will be an announcement. Oh, classic NASA. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we, we've been we've had an announcement from Bill Nelson. He tweeted that on April the third, we will find out who the crew is that are going to go back to the moon on the Artemis two mission, which will be. Well, they're currently targeting November 2024. So this seems incredibly early to be announcing the crew. It feels yeah. like they've, they're trying desperately to maintain some kind of momentum with the new story about Artemis. But it's so early to be doing this. Because where do you yeah. go from here? Yeah, we're, well, the only thing I can think is maybe we'll follow their training or something like that. You know, maybe. Yeah, but I don't think we will because they, NASA are getting so tight-lipped on these kind of things. True true i hope we do it would be cool if they opened i mean it doesn't have to be every day or anything like that or even every week it could be like maybe you know sort of a spotlight on what they're you know that what their training is going to look like because we haven't seen that really happen in over 50 years it'd be kind of neat to see okay this is what training for a moon mission is going to look like now you know maybe a series about that you know from their public relations i don't see them doing that I don't see him doing that. I don't see him either doing that, but that would be cool if they did. It, it feels like we have got a group of astronauts who know how to be human compared to some of the astronauts from the Apollo era who were so military test pilots that they didn't know how to express themselves. We've got a group of astronauts yeah. that know how to express themselves, yet it feels like we don't hear from them very much. Yeah. I mean, maybe I'm looking in the wrong places, but I'm someone who's actively looking for the right places. And I don't see much of the active astronauts actually engaging with mass media as often as they should do. Yeah. Where's the Life magazine deal for these guys? Do, do you yeah. know what I mean? Like they're, Exactly. They're, they're not public faces. And maybe this will change as this announcement happens. But I don't see that. I don't see that as being that trajectory, which is why I'm wondering, why are they announcing this now? These people aren't known. We don't know who they are. Even if they announce the names, we've known these astronauts exist for ages. We've got their CVs. That's all we know about them. They've done yeah. a mission or two. We may have learned a little bit more about them through the course of their mission, but only we've seen them work on the ISS. That's, that's what we know about them. And maybe that's all we need to know about them. But... If you want to really get people passionate about going to the moon, we're going to need to know more. You're going to have to reach out more than what they are currently doing. Maybe it's a budget thing. Maybe they're trying to protect the astronauts. Maybe they're just trying to allow them to do their jobs. But I think, bearing in mind it's a taxpayer-funded project, yeah. bearing in mind this is a huge thing for humanity right now, I think yep. it's a missed opportunity if we don't hear more from them. And hopefully that's what this announcement is about. I agree totally. Uh, like Richard Jurek in the book by uh, 
him and uh, David Scott, not the astronaut David Scott, but they did the Marketing the Moon book. And I totally agree. I think Apollo was marketed very differently. People were just crazy, you know, about Apollo. And I think now people just are, most people don't even know there is a moon program. I, I could yeah. talk to somebody on the street and they would have no idea. Whereas back in the 60s, people were crazy. Like these guys were celebrities back then. I think Rusty said last week he was glad when he used to travel with Jacques Cousteau because nobody knew who he was. You know, I mean, that's how big this was, that he got recognized everywhere. And I doubt many people nowadays could recognize, except for diehards like us, obviously, could recognize these people in public. And I'm sure they're grateful for that. I don't know. There's part of me that thinks you're you're one of the few people that are being granted the uh, opportunity to do this. You yeah. kind of expect to be in the public, right? I don't, I don't know. Especially if you're going to be the first back to the moon and you're signing up to be an astronaut at the point where that's happening. Yeah. You know how big of a deal Neil Armstrong is. The first woman is going to be a huge celebrity, probably. We know that. So yeah. why not start preparing the groundwork now? Exactly. And, they left, need to and, get- and giving out more information now. And, maybe, and as I say, maybe that's what this announcement is actually for. I feel, you know, they need to get used to it before... It happens because you've read the books about Armstrong and Sally Ride, who was the first American woman in space. And I wouldn't say they were ill-prepared to be the first by any stretch. They did a great job, but they had to deal with the stresses of that status. Or maybe that's why they're keeping them behind closed door a little bit. But That's true, maybe. But for that very reason, why would they be announcing their names if they were trying to protect them? Not this far out in advance. That seems counterproductive. I hope... This is the start of a real outreach program from NASA. I hope that's the case, and we'll soon see. But this feels very early in the cycle to announce the crew for a flight which may, well, is scheduled for November 2024. This seems like a long way out. Anyway, this is a story that clearly I wanted to have a little rant about. Check the show notes and I will put links to all the other stories I briefly mentioned as well, as well as what Emily and I talked about earlier for her story. Check that out on spaceandthingspodcast.com. And remember, when you fire your lasers in space, no one can hear the beam. Thank you so much for listening this week. We've had the wonderful Don Irwin and his wife provide some audio snippets, which I've used throughout the episode. Thank you, Don and Robin. Uh, And thank you, Don, for being a patron of ours for so long and so loyal to us. We really appreciate that. If you are one of our Patreon subscribers, please do consider recording some parts of your own and sending them to me. All I've got to do is be voice memos on your phone. That's it. I can do all the other stuff. There's no need for a fancy microphone or anything like that. If you're not part of our Patreon page, please consider signing up. It's a really wonderful thing for us to see people join in and supporting what we do. Yes, it's very much appreciated. Uh, thanks to all of those who got in contact over the last week to tell us their thoughts on our interview with Rusty Schweikert. It really did seem to go down well, and we're really happy we were able to present that to you. Uh, thanks to all who shared that episode and any other episodes, which is really great to see. But don't forget, in space, no one can hear you me. You're listening to Space and Things with Dave Giles and Emily Carney.